0: All right, so Ezra chapter 7 this morning. Looking forward to this. We're, at, we're past the halfway point of the book. Um, there's only 10 chapters in Ezra. We're going to, of course, work our way through Nehemiah as well throughout this series because both of these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, were generally historically considered to be one book. Um, they tell the same story from a couple angles. But as we're getting to Ezra 7, we're we're past the halfway point. We're into the second half, and if you've been paying attention, you you maybe have noticed that Ezra is not actually in the book, or hasn't been up to this point. Uh, No, no Ezra in the book of Ezra. But that changes today. He he shows up in chapter seven. Up to this point, there are two guys that were primarily the focal point as far as the leadership of Israel goes. Uh, and that would be Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And these two guys were uh, charged with leading the first wave of returning exiles back to the land. There were um, probably about 50,000 people or so that came with them, so a pretty small number compared to the whole nation that that existed. But they get there, and they do uh, the work of rebuilding the temple and uh, they, that took a long time. It took a number of years for them to accomplish that. But uh, they, they got that done. and that's where we landed last last week. But today, the the book basically takes um, a turn towards kind of a new wave or a new generation of, of exiles who are returning. And they return with this guy named Ezra. So Ezra's going to show up in the story finally today, um, and he is coming to the land with some people uh, in kind of a second wave of returning people. So that's where we're, what we're going to see today and, and hopefully um, glean what we can from this. Um, but I want to I point this out, that Ezra's primary purpose in returning is not the physical rebuilding of anything. That's what Zerubbabel did. That's, and of course, there's still more to build, and Nehemiah is going to get into that um, a little more. But Ezra's role is not to rebuild a physical building. What Ezra's role is going to be is is even more important. It is to reform the people of Israel's hearts back to the Lord and his word. And that's a crucial thing. You see uh, God reestablishing his people in the land after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. They're freed to go back because God God changes who's in charge and and frees these people to return. But it's not primarily about rebuilding the city of Jerusalem or even primarily about rebuilding the temple. It is primarily about reinstituting their life with the Lord. And and Ezra, while Zerubbabel and and Jeshua certainly played a role in that work, it's not that they completely ignored that, but their primary focus was on rebuilding the physical building of the temple. Ezra's gonna focus on the hearts of the people. And so that's, that's the kind of the key difference as we see these kind of two stories play out in this book. You almost have two uh, returns to the land and, and in sense you do because there's a second wave of people. Okay, so let's get into the first, um, the first five verses here and we'll, we'll get uh, this in front of us. Now after this, the in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, don't you guys feel bad for me already? This is brutal. The son of Zadok, it's going to get worse. The son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of... Zerah, Hiath, this guy here could pronounce all these words, uh, son of Yuzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. Oh, thank goodness I got one. I got one right. Aaron is right. Cool. Uh, the chief priest. Okay. Um, what is all that? What we're getting here is a, is a genealogy of Ezra's family lineage. Here, here's why that's important. Now, I know that a lot of times we we read these passages in the scripture and we go, this is awful. It's like reading the phone book, except it's worse because we can't pronounce the names. and And it just doesn't seem like it lands with us the importance of this. But to to the Jewish context, in particular, to the Old Testament Jewish context, in particular, there is uh, there is some serious significance here. because if you're if you trace, the the line through all these names, and you get to the last name that is mentioned, you you understand the point of what they're trying to do. He, they're trying to convey that Ezra comes from the line of Aaron, and if you don't know who Aaron is, Aaron is the brother of Moses, and Aaron was the the family the the branch off the tree, so to speak, of the family tree that that was responsible for having the priestly Line of of uh, the Israelites. So, if you were to become a priest, uh, a, a spiritual leader within the community of Israel, you you had to trace your lineage back to Aaron. That was how it worked. You didn't just get to wake up and go, "I'm going to choose to have a job as a priest when I grow up." You didn't have that in the context of Old Testament Israel. It wasn't a career path that you chose. It was a lineage that you followed. And so what we're seeing here is that Ezra, his genealogy tells us that he comes from the lineage of Aaron, which means he had the authority to be a priest and serve as a priest in this second wave of returnees. So what we're seeing today is that God is wanting to work in the lives of his people to change their hearts, bringing a reformation of God's word. And, he, and he's going to do that by sending this priestly character named Ezra, who who is going to bring God's word to the people in a in a way that it hadn't been up to this point, so the genealogy of Ezra that's why it's here. That's why it's in there. As as uh, awkward as it is for someone to try to read all this out loud, it's like this is why it's here. It's because he is descended from Aaron, the chief priest, and so. Uh, this is the way that Ezra could show up to definitively say to the people in, in, in Jerusalem, hey, I'm from Aaron's family. I have the authority to serve in this role. He couldn't have just turned up and been like, guess what? I'm a priest now without proving it. And this is the proof, the lineage, the genealogy. We see the exact same thing happen with Jesus's genealogies in the, in the New Testament. When you turn to Matthew chapter 1, when you turn to Luke, I think it's chapter 2, uh, you have the list of genealogy of Jesus Christ. And again, you trace it all the way back. Um, in, in Matthew's case, it traces back to David, showing us that Jesus is the rightful king of David's throne. Uh, when you go to um, go to Luke's, he goes all the way back to Adam from the garden, showing us that Jesus Christ is truly man and he can truly relate to all of us, not just the Jewish people, but to Gentiles as well, right? There's a purpose in the genealogies. And so that's why, that's why this is here, to show us that Ezra comes from that line and lineage. And that's going to play a big role because that's the function he's going to have in this community. Well, let's look at verse six together. It says, this Ezra went up from Babylonia Babylonia was kind of the generic name for Babylon and the Persian Empire is kind of taken over. But Babylonia was sort of that regional area. And it says he was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king, that is Artaxerxes, granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So we're told a few biographical details of Ezra here. Um, not a ton but we're given a few details. We're told that Ezra is a scribe. So what that means, what it would have meant for them as they read that originally, was that he was highly educated and he was a competent teacher. Uh, He had had been taught how to teach. and, And so he was a scribe in that. It says that he was particularly skilled in the law of Moses. Or in other words, he had a gift from God to understand God's word and to explain it to others, we're told that he uh, is uh, that God is actually the one who gave them gave him this ability, because it says that the hand of the Lord was on him. This wasn't just purely a natural gift in him; it was a supernatural gifting from the Spirit of God to enable him to teach and understand the Scriptures. And and so we're told also here one more interesting detail. At the end of chapter, or at the end of verse six, rather, it says that the king, King Artaxerxes, referencing there, granted to Ezra all that he asked. That's interesting. And that tells us something kind of, doesn't give us a lot of specifics, but it tells us that Ezra probably was a high official in the court of the Persian king. Uh, he, He probably played a role either as an advisor to the king or in some kind of capacity in the cabinet, if you want to call it that, if you think about the presidency today, and he's got all his guys around him and gals around him who help him decide uh, what he should do in various ways, right? The the kings of old were similar to that. They had a bunch of people. Now, they didn't always listen to them, um, but, but they had people. And so Ezra was probably in that role. He was at least in a relationship with the king to the point that the king would hear what he wants and then actually give him what he wants. So that's a unique thing. Not everybody could just walk up to the king and be like, "I want this," and then not have their head cut off or something. Right? That's that's just not how it worked in these crazy, crazy, brutal dictatorships of the of the uh, long, you know, years ago in the in this region. Um, so so Ezra had the ear of the king in some way. We're not exactly told what his role was. We are told, I believe it's Nehemiah who served as the cupbearer of the king, uh, which we'll, we'll get to and we get to Nehemiah. So he was a very important and trusted figure as well because if you are the cupbearer, it's your job to drink it to see if it's poisoned first and then hand it to the king. And uh, you had to be a trusted person so that you didn't poison the cup if you handled the cup. So these guys had a, had a role to play and we don't know exactly what Ezra's was but we know he was close to the king. So let's look at verse 11. uh, uh, Excuse me, I'm sorry. Let's look at verse uh, 7 through 10. It says, And there uh, went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And it says, uh, For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel." Uh, we're gonna get back to verse 10 because I think that's gonna be the, the key kind of centerpiece of this, of this passage. But basically what this is just simply telling us is that Ezra um, gets permission from the king to go over the course of four or five months or so to journey to Jerusalem and join the other exiles and that he brings some other people with him, that he's not just by himself. He takes, he takes a wave of people who wanna join him in this. But it, but we're told specifically that his his purpose in going to Jerusalem was to bring the word of God to the people. That was his heart. He had set his heart to do this, and, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. But let's let's kind of wrap up the chapter. Let's look at the rest of it, and then we'll back up and talk about what this has to teach us uh, in our context. So verse 11, he says. It says this is a copy of the of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. So we're told that with Ezra, there comes this letter from the king. And we've, if you've been tracking with this through Ezra, you, there's been like four or five letters that we've had to read. Um, and there are, some of them are from people who are opposing the work, writing to the king. Other letters are from the king, responding to those letters, but here we see Artaxerxes writes a letter, puts it in Ezra's hand and, and says, bring this with you and read it. So Artaxerxes, here's what it says. Artaxerxes, king of kings. So that gives you an idea of how he viewed himself. Uh, he's the king of kings. I'm pretty sure just Jesus is the king of kings, but Artaxerxes thought he was. Uh, so Artaxerxes, king of kings to Ezra, the priest the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. That's always a good start. You want peace to be in the letter because otherwise it's gonna be a bad letter for you. Now it says, I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or the priests or the Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you for you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in, the, in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the free will offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. Okay, one more paragraph, then we'll be done with this. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river. All such as know the laws of your God and those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. All right, that was a long letter. So, but here's boiling it down, simply this is what Ezra is told by the king. Ezra's being sent by the king. This is interesting. Um, he's basically being sent as an emissary or, or uh, an ambassador or perhaps even a governor. And there's a sense in which he's, he's almost like a governor because he's being given instructions to impose certain things on behalf of the king. But in a deeper sense, of course, we know that Ezra's being sent there by God. God's using King Artaxerxes to get him there. But what he tells him uh, to do is simply this. He tells him, here's the money that you have. Here's what you should do with that money. And if there's anything left over, you can do whatever you want with it. And you should um, also appoint judges and magistrates to make sure that the the people are uh, not being lawless. And so the king basically gives Ezra two instructions. Here's how to spend the money. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to get judges in place. Okay, that's, that's basically what all of that was to tell us. Um, that, but underneath all of this, we see that it's actually God who's doing the work. We see this in chapter, uh, of verse 27 and 28, the last two verses here. It says, blessed be the Lord. This is not part of the letter. This is Ezra's commentary on this. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. He says, I took courage for the hand of the Lord, my God was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So Ezra's uh, interpretation or understanding of these events is that it is God who's doing this. Yes, he's using Artaxerxes as the kind of the mouthpiece, but but Ezra specifically says that God is the one who put this thing into the heart of the king. God stirred this this man, and Artaxerxes. Let's not let's not like think for a second that he was a good guy. Like he he was a wicked wicked dude. He was incredibly brutal. Uh, he was a dictator. He wasn't a gracious, loving Christian man. Okay, we can. We, we need to know that. And yet God takes this man and he softens his heart to bend it towards the will of God. And that's an amazing thing. That God can use the craziest of people to accomplish his purposes. And, and Ezra is just acknowledging that, that God has put this thing into the heart of the king. It wasn't there just by nature. It was there because God put it there. Okay, so let's talk a little bit. We've worked through the chapter, but let's step back and talk about what this speaks to us today. We are, we are living in some ways not unlike the times of Ezra. What do I mean by that? Well, I don't mean that we're all, you know, moving back to our homeland after being kicked out of it. I, what I mean is that we're living in a time similar to Ezra's because people don't know God's word. And if they did, they don't live, and if they do, they don't live it like it's true most of the time. In our time, we've seen, um, uh, well, really in cultures for a long time, we've seen uh, the society around us moving away from biblical worldviews to a humanistic worldview. That's, that's just what's happened. It's been happening for a long time. It's not brand new. It might feel brand new, uh, but it's not. It's been happening for about 500 years. Since the Reformation, kind of that, that wave after the Reformation, the world has, the Western world, uh, Europe and what, anything that kind of stemmed from that in thought, which includes America, has slowly moved over 500 years away from a biblical worldview, a worldview that sees the world from the vantage point of God created it. God has a plan for it. He sent his son into the world to save it. We've moved away from that largely not everyone, not every individual, but largely we've moved away to move towards a centered on humanity worldview. A, humanity, a, a worldview that says, "Look, I need to look within myself and not outside of myself. And that, has, that is just the reality of where we are. We can cry about that. We can whine about it. We can be frustrated. But instead we should probably realize that this is what we're working with and let's figure out how to work with it. Let's see how we can actually bring the gospel to bear in it. it it's, it's one of those things we can have these, these exercises of thought where we'll go, well, if, if the circumstances were like this, then, it, then I would do this. But it's like, that's not the world you live in. So how about we work with what we have? So we're living in a, in a worldview that says, everything needs to look within. Truth is in yourself. You get to do whatever you want to do, right? You do you. That's, that's the worldview of humanism wrapped up in three words. You do you. You start with yourself and you just work out of that. Or you hear it a lot and this, this one drives me nuts, but people say, speak your truth. Your truth? There's no such thing. There is the truth. But we're not living in a society that thinks that way anymore. We, we are working with people. We are living next to people. We are going to school with people. We are going to work with people who believe that we have our own version of truth and that that we can just do what we want because everything starts with me and not outside of me. And one of the the really helpful kind of, um, just boiling this down to real simple things is from this book called The Wisdom Pyramid. A guy named Brett McCracken wrote this book and uh, I've got a few copies on the bookshelf for half off if you want to get a copy of it and you should do yourself a favor and do that. Um, it's a great book. But here's, wh- here's one of the th- things he says in one of his chapters at the beginning. He says, um, contrary to what a look within world would suggest, right? so that's humanism, look within. Contrary to what that world would suggest, the world outside of our heads defines our existence in ways we are foolish to ignore. Rather than seeing this as oppressive, or simply pretending foolishly that it isn't the case, we should accept this situation as a gift. Truth comes from outside ourselves. We can can choose the sources of where we look for truth. We can choose how we synthesize truth and apply it as everyday wisdom, but we don't get to choose whether something or not is true. We don't invent truth. We don't determine it. We search it out. And we accept it with gratitude, even when it's at odds with our feelings or preferences. And and that's, I think, foundationally, this this is what's encouraging, is that Ezra's walking into a context which has largely become inwardly focused. We saw that last week, right? We saw how how Zechariah and Haggai, these prophets that God sent, had to tell these people, man, you are just so self-centered. You guys got to get back to work. You got to do what you're called to do. Why are you just looking at yourself all the time? It's nothing new. The world we live in, everything goes in cycles, right? And and there are ebbs and flows in in all of this. But what this chapter teaches us is that God brings his truth. And he's the only one who actually has his truth. You don't have your truth and I don't have my truth. But God does have truth because God is truth and all truth flows from him. And God brings his truth to us through his word, through the scriptures. And it's amazing as we look at the story of Ezra and how they focus so heavily on the rebuilding of the buildings. And then in the right time, about 60 years later, God sends this guy named Ezra who is particularly gifted in the Bible, and and has a heart for it, and wants to teach the people, and he sends him, through the king's instruction, to go and bring this word to the people of Israel. And so, if we just look at back at verse ten for a moment, this I think is what we're seeing as the as the key formula, if you want to call it that, um, the the key factors of what we need as a community of faith as individual believers who are living in a world that is hostile in many ways to the to the God of scripture what do we need to do we need to set our hearts in the same place Ezra did verse 10 for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel This is is it. There's three things that Ezra sets his heart to do. First is to study the Bible, to study the word of God. It's it's called the law of the Lord in this passage, in this verse. Again, we're we're dealing with an Old Testament context where uh, they had the words of God to Moses, which was described as the law. But he studied it. Verse six affirms this as well—that he was skilled in the law of the Lord. He, in other words, um, Ezra comes to the people of Israel not with his words, not with his opinions, not with his thoughts on what they should do differently, but he comes to them with what God says, His truth, God's word, as the driving thing that he brings. God is the only one who can truly establish truth. It's not us. We can't find truth from within. We find truth as we carefully study the scriptures. And if we want to know, I hear people, as in, a, in my pastoral role, I hear people all the time say, I just wish God would say something to me. Guys, it's right here. You got it. He has. He said a lot. This is a big book. There's a lot in here that he has said to you. He speaks through his word. And ultimately, he speaks through, through Jesus Christ, which the Word of God points us to. It, in fact, Paul makes this point in Romans chapter ten, um, and I'll just read a little bit here of, of Romans ten for us. But um, I was I was uh, I woke up very early this morning at like midnight for a while and uh, just was reading. I read Romans one to ten and I got to ten and I was like, well, okay, cool. I need this. Um, and and so it says. Paul writes, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is for the the Jewish people who have rejected Jesus, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, verse four is crucial. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end. Now, that word end can mean two things. It can mean, and I think it means both in this context. It can mean the, the ceasing of something, which I think is absolutely true, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, so he ceases to, to have it in place in our lives in that, in that way that we have to work our way to him. Okay? And, uh, but end can also mean purpose or goal, and that's true too, that Christ is the goal of the law, that he is the, that everything in the law of Moses points us to Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. It says, for Moses writes about righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your hearts. That is the faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is what Paul's point is, is that the law, the law of Moses cannot get us all the way to salvation because we can't obey it perfectly. But Christ did. And Christ stood in our place and did that for us. And so the Bible, yes, we should study the Bible, but we should study the Bible to get to Jesus. That's what it's pointing us to. That's what it's drawing us to. And so it's vital that we learn how to read our Bibles and how to get the most out of them. That is is vital for us. And and that's what I'm going to do in our next seminar series after we wrap up ethics, is I'm going to do a class on how to study the Bible for any of you who are interested in that. Um, so there's a little preview, but I think that's important. I think we, we need to learn some principles on how to study the scriptures accurately. And I will hope to teach that. But, but Ezra sets his heart to study the law of the Lord, not just to just come up with what, it, what he thinks it says, but to actually dig into it deeply. But then notice what it, what it says. Go back to Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. It says, so the, to study the law of the Lord... What's the next phrase? And to do it. So studying the word is vital. That's the first thing we've got. We've got to know what God says if we're going to have lives that honor him. But we also are called to live by what God says. We are called to actually apply his word to our hearts. This is very clear in the scriptures. James chapter 1 verse 22 tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. So it's one thing to hear God's word or to read God's word and then to just kind of ignore it and go about our day, but the Bible is to lead us to life change through Christ. This happens as we believe in Christ and trust him for our salvation and ask him to help us through his spirit to apply, our, apply his word rather to our day-to-day lives. The Bible's functions like a mirror that we hold up to ourselves and we go, where, where am I not in alignment with this? Where am I not in alignment with what God says? And when we see those things, when those things are drawn out for us, we repent of the failures and we ask God to help us grow and apply the, the death of Christ to those sins, but to help us move forward. And that's, a, that's an ongoing process that just keeps happening through the life of a Christian. We are to study the Bible and we're also to live in light of the Bible. And then there's a third thing that Ezra did and he set his heart to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now, the issue of teaching the Bible Uh, might spook some of us. But here's the thing. Not all of us are going to be teachers in a formal way. But every one of us has a responsibility to help others learn the Bible with whatever capacity we can. We're not all called to be teachers in a formal way. Not everyone's called to be a pastor or an elder or whatever. But but everyone is called uh, to help others apply the Bible to their lives. As moms and dads that's with our children, If it's grandparents, it's with their grandkids. Friends with our friends. Co workers with our co workers. Pastor Chris and I were just talking this morning about how everybody really is a counselor. Everybody's a counselor. Everybody gets to take the Bible. Every Christian gets to take, every non Christian too is a counselor, but just bad ones. Um, But everyone should take the Bible and say, how does this apply to your life? We can help each other with that. We don't have to be perfect at it. We don't have to be super, super educated. We just have to be, have some of the basic tools to study the Bible. And we need to be not hypocritical and not live what we're telling other people to do. I think we're uncomfortable with that. But I think that's, again, because we're uncomfortable because we're living, we're kind of afraid of saying things to people because we do live in a you-do-you world. We don't want to step on toes. We don't want to say this is right or this is wrong. But where the Bible clearly draws those lines, we need to be willing to step in and say those things to help, not to hurt, not to be brutal, not to be cruel, but to be compassionate and helpful because the best way to live is in alignment with God's word. That's how, life, that's how we flourish in life is by applying God's word to our lives. And Jesus actually himself brings this whole thing into, into focus in Luke chapter six, verse 46 to 49. He he says this, I'll, I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I tell you? Let's stop there for a second. He's pointing out a contradiction, right? If someone is Lord, you do what they say. Like that's that's like, how the thing works, right? And so Jesus is going, you're calling me Lord, but you're not doing what I tell you. So he's pointing out the contradiction. And that's a contradiction that exists in every single Christian's life, mine and yours. We know what God says, we call him Lord, and how often do we choose not to do what he tells us? For me, every day at some point. I won't say that about you because you're you you know you're definitely better than me. But But we're all there, right? We all do this. So Jesus is pointing out the contradiction. He then says this, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them and does them, right? I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. So when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus is making a a clear point here. He's saying that if we come to him and hear what he says and live by what he says, our lives are going to be secure and on solid ground. If we do the alternative where we build our house without a foundation that is Christ, Christ is the solid rock we build our house on our lives on. If we are building our foundation building our lives without the foundation of Christ, as soon as something comes against us, what happens? We just collapse I, I, the, the vivid picture of this is in my mind is. Uh, last summer, I took my boys out to Yellowstone. And everywhere I go, catastrophe follows, like right after I leave. Um, it's just kind of weird. So I need to avoid going to beautiful places. Um, but we, we left. We, we were there for about a week or four days or something. Um, and, and as soon as we left, like as soon as I got home, it says... Yellowstone River is flooding and destroying Yellowstone National Park. You know, I'm like, what? What just, what happened? And we would have been completely stranded there. But I saw on one of the news articles, one of the news videos had a picture of a house that we drove past every single day on our way into the park that was literally floating down the river because the storm had just hit that house, knocked it off its foundation you know, Chris says it was built really well, but I, I'm not convinced it was a, a good built house, right? Because it's just like, like Noah's Ark, just floating down that, that Yellowstone River. But that's the picture. Like that's, our lives are ruined like that house when we don't listen to Jesus. But, but notice what he says. Jesus actually says something subtle here that we need to catch. In the first section, he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them is like the man who digs deep and lays it on a foundation. In the second case, he does not say, comes to me. He says, the one who hears and does not do them. So what's the key difference? It's it's subtle, but the difference is one person goes to Jesus and the other does not. We can hear all about Jesus. We can listen to things about Jesus. But if we're not coming to Jesus to believe in him and trust in him, our lives will never withstand the onslaught of the world around us. So Jesus is giving us the alternatives to come to him and experience joy in life or to run in the other direction towards ruin and destruction. So I think the clear application is, is, let's come to Jesus. Let's listen to him. And let's do what he says by trusting him. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your grace to us and your, the reminder of your word as Ezra shows us what it means to come and bring the word of God to a people. Would you help us uh, to do likewise? To, to apply this principle as, as in whatever context we, we need to. Lord, would you help us bring your word to our lives, to apply it, and would you also help us to bring your word to the lives of those people around us? Would you give us wisdom, God, as we do this? Would you help us to point one another to the love of Christ, to what you've done, and to how you've died for our sins? so that we can be made whole and right with you. And also, God, to, um, to, to live a life that is actually fruitful for the gospel's sake. We ask for your help in these things, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.